Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, a writer, entrepreneur, and changemaker, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. This podcast highlights some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you meet on this podcast. We all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. Emma Liebler is an incredible powerhouse in the literary world, a force of creative potential who has inspired people around the globe. He has so many accolades and awards to his name that we'd take up a whole episode trying to name them all. In a nutshell, ML is a professor at Wayne State University, where he's taught and created courses on the Beatles' impact on popular culture, the poetry and music of Motown, urban labor literature, and the Vietnam War through literature. He is the author of 16 books and seven recordings, and he has performed as a Fulbright specialist and literary arts activist around the world. He has coordinated and offered too many programs to name. Michael Moore said, M.L. Liebler is the poet laureate of America's working class. Alicia Ostriker said, M.L. Liebler is a piece of the reality poetry needs to stay alive. He is a beacon shining for the republic of poetry and love for which he stands. Mostly, he's an incredible person with a way of looking at the world that is honest and inspiring. And I'm so honored to welcome M.L. Liebler to the Make Meaning Podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's really nice to see you because you have long been one of the people I most admire um, as a, a talented artist and family man and just cool guy all around. So well, thank you. Thank you wow. for making the time. So wow. so I want to begin at the start. Yes. Um, tell me if you I was could. born on Wayne State's <laughs> campus in 1953. <laughs> How did you that's launch? <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. But that's actually kind of funny to think about that you were born on campus that you've been on forever. So 40 years plus. Wow. How did you launch this journey of writing and performing and teaching? Like, where did it start? Well, let's see. The teaching part, um, I well, when I was in the sixth grade, it all goes back. So <laughs> I hope you have uh, the tape cued for Grateful Dead <laughs> concert length. Uh, no. I, but in the sixth grade, I just remember, uh, you know, I was raised by my grandparents. And I remember my grandmother coming back from a conference with the teacher, as they have to do, or they do. And she said, you know, because we're, we're real working class, so, mm -hmm. you know, my grandparents were not academics or anything like that. So they came back and said, you know, your teacher said the weirdest thing or funniest thing, um, that you would make a great teacher. And, and I said, oh, that's interesting. And she said, um, but not with kids. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay. Uh -huh. I didn't know what that meant. Uh -huh. Except for that one poem I have that talks about snotty-nosed kids. But <laughs> um, So she came home and told me that. And I just thought, oh, okay. I didn't think much about it. I mean, what, what could you think at the age of, what, 11? Mm -hmm. So uh, time went on. And um, after... Um, I started to, well, I was always writing. That's mm -hmm. one thing mm -hmm. that started a few years, even before 11, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what it was. Okay. <clears throat> it wasn't like I set out, I am going to be a poet. It wasn't anything like that. Sure. Um, but I was scribbling my feelings down on paper. Uh -huh. So, 
Uh, as time moved forward, I continued doing that and couldn't stop doing that. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't think about it. I didn't think like, oh, I want to be a poet. You know, I mean, sure. that, that was so foreign to where I come from that um, I would never even think something like that. So time went on with with that. I was still doing it like it, when I got into high school, when I got into college. And then, um, then it dawned on me, oh, you know what? I will combine this writing with this teaching. Because I did like, when I got to college, I really liked watching the teachers work and stuff like that. Sure. And um, I didn't think like, oh, I could do that. I just thought, that, that's interesting to me. So I kept writing, and then the two sort of merged in, in early college. And at first, which is really kind of different, I decided um, I really was good at history okay, and loved history. Okay. Um, and I, I might say it was easy for me, so to speak. Um, although when we went away to college and me and my best friend, who is my wife's cousin, we okay. grew up together. Okay. Well, all of us grew up together, actually. That's kind of uh, interesting, too. <laughs> and um, so we went to college. He was my roommate. He registered because he was really good in English classes, and I was really good in history. And this is a true story. And we got our schedules and everything, um, and he went to his classes on the first day I went to mine. And we said, at, when we met up afterwards, um, I, I thought, you know, if I'm really going to be a poet, I probably should be an English major. Uh-huh. You know, I don't I don't think I'd be very good at it, but I should do that. And he said, "Well, you know, I really like um history." Huh. So we just switched schedules. <laughs> I mean, I we it. went through the paperwork eventually, yeah. but he started yeah. going to my classes <laughs> and I started going to his. Uh-huh. And then he ended up graduating, you know, kuma sum laude and he had all kinds of cords hanging off of him and uh-huh. you know, I barely had a hat on, so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So that's um, that's kind of how the two came together. Uh-huh. Um, if you want to know how the whole, you know, making poetry accessible thing happened. Yeah. Is that why, like I was going to ask you next about, you know, what does it mean to be a literary arts activist? So that's pretty much the definition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what you know, that is right. What I thought, this is true. I remember thinking this in, or, you know, in the middle of my four years of college when we went away uh, I started thinking, you know, I I understand poetry, uh-huh. not all of it, but I get it, mm-hmm. and I'm not that smart. <laughs> so why couldn't, you know, smart people, like regular people in society, get into it? And I kind of explored that myself as to, you know, why, um, you know, your average person didn't read poetry and why, sure. if I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, one of the other sides of my life, I was always, because of my grandmother, really influenced by music, Yeah, especially rock and roll music. Uh-huh. And uh, I was exposed to it at a young age, probably be child abuse now, but I was four <laughs> and she gave me Elvis's first album. <laughs> but, um, and I could probably file a complaint, but at any rate, <laughs> so... I uh, so I always had that going. I was really into music, okay. and then when the Beatles came, which was uh, after you know shortly after uh, Elvis, uh-huh. it just I you know I looked at, at them on the Ed Sullivan show, 
And I didn't know, and people didn't know, I say this in the library show I do about the Beatles, that Uh people at that point didn't know who was who. Okay. And everybody thought Ringo was the the coolest one, Uh only because he had such a bizarre name. Oh, yeah. So everybody knew Ringo. They didn't know who he was, but they knew that name. (laughs) Okay. So in that very first Ed Sullivan show, they had to put their names in front of them, like on the screen, so people knew who they were. Wow. But before they did that, I saw the guy on on my right uh, standing with his legs kind of separated and and his guitar a little higher than usual and and singing and playing. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Man, I, I dig that guy." I don't know if I said "dig that guy," yeah. but I did. I saw him, and it just electrified me. Well, as time went on, that was John Lennon, uh-huh. and and uh-huh. Um, and when they said they showed his name, I knew, oh, that's John, because oh. we knew we'd heard sort of their names. Sure, this was all very early in their history. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to hold your hand had just kind of gone to number one, okay, and in February, early February, they came to America. Yeah, yeah. so that's when I saw them, and I also credit my education really to them. Mm-hmm. You know, as they How so. Well, because as they grew up um, at musically and culturally, mm-hmm. I kind of grew with them. So uh-huh. I was always interested. I'm not a nerd. Uh, I don't think. Maybe I am. But um, I, <laughs> I'm always interested in stuff. So when the Beatles would talk about certain emotions, feelings, or people uh-huh. uh, later, right. like in Revolution and stuff, they'd say Chairman Mao, I would go to the library. Uh, I liked hanging out in the library. I'm not a, a reader per mm-hmm. se, or I wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, but I'd like to hang out and look stuff up. Okay. I still like to do that yeah. on my iPad. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I was just doing it this uh-huh. morning. So I was looking up, you know, he, they said Chairman Mao, like, who's that? Look it up. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like how I started to educate myself. And then uh, the war in Vietnam w- was starting in uh, around 65, at least is when I became aware of it, because mm-hmm. the na- there was a neighbor boy on our street who went to our high school, mm-hmm. and he went to Vietnam right away. His dad oh. was a Marine. He signed up to be, this sure. was before the draft. Yeah. And um, within a short time of being in country, he was killed. Oh. And I didn't wow. really understand that either. Mm-hmm. I remember the neighbors going around and taking up a collection for flowers and oh. the family and oh. stuff. I remember that, and I remember my grandmother talking about it. But really what impacted me, and I knew his younger brother yeah. and the parents, mm-hmm. and what really affected me was how sad, continually sad the mother was. Yeah. When you'd see her in front sure. of the house or you know sweeping up grass clippings or something, she just looked really sad. Yeah. And that affected me because I really loved my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So I, I I had this, you know, intense love for grandmothers or mothers and to see her like that because I knew her before before that. Yeah. That really impacted me. Okay. So now I'm want to sit at the library and find out what more about Vietnam. So this is 60 December 65 when he was killed. So Mm -hmm. 66, six. And then the Beatles are increasingly uh, voicing their opinion and they're putting it in some songs. And um, so that's why I say it led to my real education. Yeah. Well, I mean, the courses that you've uh, created at Wayne State are incredible, and I wish I could have taken them. Um, but it's just because there's so much passion, and then looking at you know 
what they said and how they impacted culture and bringing that all together is is brilliant. And it, I mean, it's really exciting. Um, but you are making um, the words accessible in so many ways, you know, mm. like in, in the way that you've traveled the world as a Fulbright specialist. And I loved, you know, um, sort of doing my research before this interview about how you don't really prepare before you teach. You just sort of let things unfold. Um, so I'd like to hear about that, especially how that's happened when you've traveled to, you know, places of conflict or um, other countries where maybe this is a totally new concept. You know, how how does it just unfold magically and impact people in that way? Well, I mean, when I first started teaching, which was like, I guess uh, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I first started doing that, I remember what I used to do for each lesson and it helped me understand because I had no experience. I was not a TA or anything right. like that. Right. Uh, I mean, when I got my master's degree um, in, say, May, by August, I was teaching at Wayne State. Okay. You know, okay. so, and that was the first time I ever taught. Oh my gosh. Um, and I went in, you know, but I felt I could do it. Mm -hmm. So I started out and I was uh, in teaching and I was writing every word down, sort of like, like le a lecture that you were going to read. Sort of like a something? lecture that I could glance at. Sure. But, you know, I, back then when you taught composition and stuff, it was really all about run on sentences yeah. and comma splices and subject verb agreement and pronoun references. Mm hmm. All stuff I knew nothing about <laughs> um, until I started teaching. And that's what one of my graduate teachers said. I, I, you know, I pulled her aside one time. She'd known me as an undergrad, too. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I don't really know this stuff. She goes, nobody does until you start doing it. Mm -hmm. So that, that made me feel a little bit more comfortable but still felt. Yeah. Because being working class, doing something that people generally don't do. Uh, teach and yeah. stand in front of people yeah, um, and do that. So uh, I would write it out and I would glance at it. And, and I think in the end that really helped me get to the, you know, being more impromptu. I didn't start right away doing sure. that. Sure. Um, then I made a move to outlining what I wanted to talk about. And as a teacher, and you know this too, you always over-prepare. Oh, always. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have way more. And then I'm like, great, now I have next week's lecture ready to right. go because I didn't get to half of it. You right. Know? And yeah. then by and in my case, by the time next week's lecture rolls around, well, I don't really lecture, but the lessons roll yeah. around, I've already thought of something interesting yeah. to do. Yeah. And that was kind of, and still is my thing, thank God. Uh -huh. uh, that makes it always interesting to me, like I'm going to teach right now. Uh -huh. I mean, I know generally what we're working on at sure. this section, sure. but I have no idea exactly what we're going to do. And okay. I always used to say students come to class because they don't know what I'm going to do <laughs> next. I'm sure. And I don't either. So, uh, and that makes it rewarding to me. Well, I... As I started to do Fulbright stuff and overseas stuff, um, similar kind of thing happened is they would tell me, um, you know, okay, come into Israel, you're going to visit this school, this school, this school. This school would like you to talk about teaching and we want you to perform a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, this school is working on this story or poem and we'd like you to kind of do a lesson around that. Hmm. Well, there... I would pra I would not practice, but I'd get all this stuff together, get there, and everything changed. Sure. So I started saying, "Well, why am I doing this? Right. You know, I'll right. just I'll just go and see what you know the students are into. Yeah. 
Um, and there's many, many examples I could give of that. But um, Do you have a favorite place that you've traveled to in this type of performing or teaching capacity? Well, I really found a lot of the work, and I spent a lot of time doing this in Israel and the West Bank. Yeah. And I would probably say the most time mm-hmm. overseas has been there because I'd go sometimes two, three times a year. Wow, great. And um, I found most of that rewarding. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, you'd run into some strange students somewhere up in Be- down in Beersheba or something. I'm just <laughs> kidding. But somewhere. Yeah. And they'd give you a hard time. Yeah. But I had so many different assignments. Sometimes I talked to teachers. I would be a, a person who gave a talk at a conference of teachers. Uh-huh. There's some interesting things there too. But um, I'd say singular best experiences, but most frightening would be some of the work that I did in Afghanistan. I'm sure. What was frightening about it? Well, here's what I thought, okay? I Because I had done a lot of work in the West Bank. Uh-huh. So I figured, how bad can it be? Sure. Well, when I got off the airplane and into the embassy car and driving there, I saw everybody on the street had machine guns. Oh, my and gosh. and then kind of racing the embassy van was a guy in a cart with ox pulling it. Oh my and gosh. And he had a machine gun. Oh my gosh. And I thought, oh, this is a little different than the West Bank, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not in Kansas anymore. So right. um and then every building you go by in the city, which you'd never are allowed to to go like people say you know if I was in even in uh, Ramallah or something I yeah. I go out and get shawarma you know but uh-huh. here there's no getting out of the car but as you drive by the buildings there's no windows in them oh and um, they're full of bullet holes Ugh. and it's just it's really bad yeah it's really bad I'll, most of the women have those blue uh, burkas on yeah. yeah like in the movies right. And, uh, but, but I came to kind of understand, I worked with some of these women. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to kind of understand that that wasn't as much a problem to them mm-hmm. because they could conceal who they were. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, you couldn't tell if they were young, old or whatever. And sure. it sort of protected them a little bit. Yeah. But I did work with a group of them. Two things come to mind. Uh, I worked with a group that sort of became famous here. Maybe they still are. Uh, the Afghan writers group, uh, oh. women writers. Okay. Um, and they actually published an anthology at the time I was there, just putting it out. Nice. And I met with these women and they all came into the secret location okay. in a compound uh, they got into this house where we were all going to do the workshop and they all like whipped their burkas off and threw uh-huh. them on the couch and, uh-huh. you know, and they were like had makeup on and modern clothes. Sure, and yeah. So um, then I thought, well, they're going to, the, the government will kill me because I'm going to change the way they think <laughs> about things. But they yeah. were radical kids, man. Yeah. Um, of different ages. Yeah, because one girl told me, we did a bunch of writing exercises, and uh-huh. one girl told me that she and uh, had just been on the cover of The Guardian oh. leading a protest in wow. Kabul. Oh, my gosh. And I said, did you have your burqa? And she goes, no, I didn't. Huh. And I said, you know, kind of like, are you crazy? Yeah. And she said, well, I go, what did your dad and your mom say? And, yeah. And she said, well, they understood because they know we have to give our blood for freedom. Oh, my gosh. And I'm thinking, 
Wow, I can't imagine my Wayne State students feeling that right, way. Right, you know? right. I mean, that was like normal because I thought as a father, I'm thinking, oh, my God. But yeah. she said, no, they stood behind me and, wow. and stand behind me. I know I won't live very long, but <gasps> oh, it was kind of stuff like yeah. that. Then another group that I met with in a classroom in um, Jalalabad, mm-hmm. of all places, Yeah, they were... Um, they were, you know, various ages. They didn't really speak English, so we had translators. And right at the beginning of this thing, it was like 100 degrees out. Oh, my gosh. Right at the beginning of this thing, the, the electricity cut off. Oh. And so it was no air conditioning, no lights. Oh, we had to gosh. open the door to get light no, oh, wow. because there's no windows yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. And I started working with these kids, and I turned them on to William Carlos Williams. Yeah. And then I put, had them put William their writing based on William Carlos Williams, like the Red Wheelbarrow yeah. or something like that, yeah. uh, to a beat. Oh. And these were Pashtun kids. You know, okay. they were all in their their customary clothing and everything. Uh-huh. And it was just so fun to watch them break loose. I yeah. mean, they were just, you know, like they'd be running and saying their poem in place and That's awesome. the music. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. So you've done a lot of work um, performing with people from different faiths. I know you're a man of deep faith. And so um, how has that, I guess, given you a different perspective or a sense of purpose, bringing all these people of different faiths and customs together through the spoken and written word? Well, I mean, it's an important aspect. It's it's just something I think for me is pretty natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one thing is if you're talking like uh, the Muslim faith in Afghanistan or uh, Judaism in um, in Israel, and you know, and then Christianity, mm-hmm. which I'm a Catholic uh, convert, mm-hmm. uh, which is worse. <laughs> and um, when you do all that. You realize it's all the same God. Absolutely. You know, Um, it truly is. Now, I don't know if they all believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I said to a a Jewish friend of mine, um, I said, you know, I really respect you. You're very religious, you know, like almost not orthodox, but Mm -hmm. more -hmm. more so than your average person might be. Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, I I just dig your spirituality, you know. Mm -hmm. And And the person said... What spirituality? <laughs> and I said, you know, you're devout and yeah. I'm devout. And he goes, well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, religion and spirituality are very different things. Yeah, I know. To me, they're the same, but I, yeah, me I too. understand that. I understand that. So um, that was kind of shocking to me. Yeah. Um, and that could happen if I said that to another Catholic. Well, sure. I know, you know, yeah. Catholics vote for, you know, Trump. So, uh, so there's inherent evil everywhere. <laughs> I love I it. I love it. So um, of all your accomplishments, do you have a favorite? Is it a favorite book or a favorite um, Fulbright effort, you know? You know, th- this kind of g- comes to the point the way that I see my life, which is it's it's all one thing. Okay. I don't really see myself as a poet or just a teacher or just a father or, ju- you know, it's like I'm on call 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um. I don't want to put myself in the same class as a doctor, but I kind of see it that way. Like it's all part of my life. It's sure. and when it comes tax time, it's hard to separate. <laughs> well, what's the poetry guy? You know, travel and all that. What's the yeah? What's the teacher expense or whatever? Sure. Because it's all. I don't do. I do very little. I mean, I enjoy everything, but I do very little just for me. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like um, where 
like even travel. Yeah. You know, okay, uh, in two weeks I'm going to Los Angeles. We're going to do a big book release for this new nice. uh, book I have. Exciting. It, on Sunset Strip in Hollywood. Okay. Well, I really do like Los Angeles. I like the weather mostly. <laughs> um, but um, but that's all, you know, so I get to go there and stay in, in Laurel Canyon, and that's really great. Uh-huh. But it's also work. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm there for a reason. I'm sure. not just there to kind of lay poolside. Right. Well, know. work travel can be really tiring, even though it's and that's fulfilling. What I, and, you know, right. And yeah. that's what I do. I, you know, you mentioned the Beatles. I, for 12 or 13 or more years, have been doing a study abroad uh-huh. uh, over spring break, yeah. which we're going to do in nice. early March again. Okay. okay. And students go over to England, to London, Liverpool, Bath, Stonehenge. You know, I take all these trips and awesome. give them a really great experience with that. Uh-huh. Manchester sometimes. Okay. And um, and and so that's yeah, that's great. I love. I really love Liverpool, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's such a great experience and. Um, but it's part of the job too. Well, I mean, I, I'm really there to. I don't hang with the students and right. stuff. Sometimes I'll come and knock on my door, say and say, and I don't drink either. But they'll say, "We're all going to the bar. Come on, you know." And it's like, "Nah, I'm going <laughs> to stay here and watch BBC Four. They're doing a great documentary on Gene Clark of the Be- of the Birds." <laughs> well, I mean, when you love what you do, it's probably it's hard to separate. You know, it's just part of. Who I think you are. that is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like doing this, and then I'm going to run off and teach. So I love it, and I, I don't it. know what I'm going to do yet. And they'll still be happy. You know, I'll ask them. Well, I want to hear back. Absolutely. (laughs) So, all right. So listen, I want to just tell our listeners, um, ML has a really unique way of performing. And so if you ever have a chance to see him in person, you definitely should do it. But in lieu of that, since I have you in the studio, Mm -hmm. I do want you to share with our listeners one of your poems. So maybe um, tell us a little bit about the book you're going to read it from. And um, let's do Mm. like full ML style, you know? Okay. This is my newest poetry book. Um, it got a Michigan Notable Award. I can see that because it's got a sticker on it. <laughs> and, um, and what's it called? It's called I Want to Be Once. Okay. Okay. And what was the inspiration for this collection? This is broken up into uh, three three sections. American Life, poems about the kind of thing we're talking about, okay. uh, where I come from. Uh-huh. Um, and then there are what I uh, then there's American War, okay. which are mostly Afghanistan poems that okay. I wrote over there. Okay. And then it ends with these short little poems that I started doing called American Psalms. Okay. Um, so this one I thought I would read the one from um, from the um, one that's not too deep. I'm not. It's deep, but it's not. You know, horror. Hey, this is a show about meaning and purpose. You can go as deep as you want. Well, th- <laughs> this is kind of, uh, this isn't the follow-up to the situation, but this is one called Kandahar uh, Mission. Okay. And it's kind of a true little story. It's in the war section. Okay. And um, it's called Kandahar Mission Briefing. Okay. They brought me in quietly, sitting all of us in, in a half circle, a chalkboard, a captain, and a mission leader. The mission is to take this poet into city center Kandahar tomorrow. To get into the city, we will take four MRAPs. The leader 
will scout the road ahead for IEDs. The middle one will carry the poet and turret gunner. The third and fourth vehicle will serve as lookouts and follow-up if any of these vehicles hits an IED. And if the vehicle doesn't tip, do not, under any circumstances, exit the vehicle. If the gunner is hit or killed, the poet must grab his legs like thus and hold on. You must not let go of the gunner. When we arrive at the outpost, soldiers in vehicles 1, 3, and 4 will exit, search school grounds for insurgents disguised as the Taliban. When the all clear is given, the poet will exit vehicle number 2 with body armor, helmet, and first aid kit. He will be surrounded by six soldiers. Once the okay is given, soldiers will bring poet into building where the poet greets the director and 34 male Kandahar poets and authors. If room is not compromised, poet may take off his body armor. If scene seems dangerous, he must keep armor and helmet on at all times. After talk, reading, and hummus, we must all leave grounds. ASAP, no lingering. <laughs> True story. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm assuming the poet's you. Is that true? Oh, no, no, yeah, no? it is. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's... And so how does that feel to be so, I mean, how does poetry live in a war zone? Or maybe how does it not, you know? Well, it, it does because these guys, and they were all guys, they never mix there. Yeah. Uh, they were all fancied themselves poets. They were kind of hand-selected, I guess. Okay. And that, so they were writing poetry. Hmm. And and uh, like one guy in the front row had blue eyes like Smokey Robinson's, yeah. and he looked like Smokey. Oh, yeah. And I kept saying that he had no clue who Smokey was. <laughs> <laughs> and I sang some songs, Tears yeah. of a Clown. Nah, I didn't. <laughs> Even the Beatles don't really resonate necessarily in Afghanistan. Yeah. I went to a, a school of music, kind of a fame school or whatever. yeah. yeah. And um, we did some music, and they played really interesting instruments. And I said, uh, mentioned something about the Beatles and got no response. And then oh. this kid brought a sitar out, and he started really jamming on it. Yeah. I go, man, that's like Jimi Hendrix. And they all were, oh, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, and wow. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Huh. It was cool. So, you know, on this show, we talk about how people make meaning in their work, find purpose in their lives. And I always like to ask my guests, you know, what advice would you have for people listening who are searching for that meaning or that purpose? They just they don't know what they're called to do or, or what path they're supposed to follow. What advice might you have for them? Well, the advice that, that I, I sort of would have is something that most people would reject, and that is spirituality and God. I mean, yeah. for me, that's, you know, what keeps it going. I can kind of see everything in that perspective sure. and, and therefore meaning. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, most people aren't going to go for that sort of thing. So I don't know, <laughs> you know, I can't help them. <laughs> but I think that's actually really good advice because you do need some kind of a yeah, higher purpose, something beyond you. It has to be. Otherwise, how can you feel that you matter? You well, know? I think everything is like related that way. And even when we do the London trip, um, the, you know, when you go to Liverpool, for example, and I know this isn't the biggest topic for everybody, but when you go there, obviously something is magical about the Beatles. We're at 60 years since they first started. Sure. And by all indications, it's only getting bigger. Right. You know, right. 
And when you go to Liverpool and you go to all the places, this one was born here, this one, and they met here and they did that, it all becomes very divine. Hmm. You know, you start going, oh, man, this didn't just happen. Sure. And then you can start to, I do, uh, look at my life that way. You Hmm. know, I don't think any place I've ever been Mm -hmm. uh, or anything I've ever done Mm -hmm. was not for some reason. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like if you believe that humans are sort of the center, it, it's a little sad, you know. And so, I mean, if you think everything's coincidental or just, you know, happens for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. But I a mean, lot of people do, and yeah. I get that, but it, but I, it doesn't for me. No, I get it. And I feel the same way. Yeah, it does. Well, I wish we could talk longer. I wish you could read more of your poems, but unfortunately we have to wrap up. But ML Liebler, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me down here to the Foundation Hotel. I know. It's such a cool space. It's amazing. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you would share our great conversations with your people so we can all add meaning wherever we go and whatever we do.